Today we're continuing in a series of sermons where we're trying to take a look at our personal faith and how we engage our public lives, leading with that faith of ours. And we're focusing this week on culture. Last week we, we talked about politics, we talked about ethics, and we talked about those decisions that are made, how we reach those decisions, and how we engage the culture when it comes to that. But today we're looking at the the culture and the things that feed our culture. And here's what we discover. A lot of the times when we look at culture, we find in our culture there's opposing forces. And what happens is these opposing forces uh, bump up against each other and they actually feed off of one another. They go back and forth. And we, we see this in a lot of things. We see it in politics, right? We have, the, we have the right and the left and they're constantly bumping against each other, pulling back and forth. Um, we, we see it in other ways. We see it in different religions. So we see them, uh, the Muslims and the Christians bumping up against each other and they feed off one another, they fight. Sometimes it's within religions, right? We have the Catholics and the Protestants and the age-old uh, disagreements they've had. We see it right within denominations, within our own denominations. We see the battle going on of human sexuality. We see it there. So in our culture, in our modern culture, there are these forces that oppose each other. They're opposites. They feed off of one another. They thrive off of one another. And we can think of many of them. We, we encounter them every day in our lives. What we really want to figure out is what is the best way? Is there a better way that we can engage that culture through our personal faith? Is there a better that way that we as a church can engage these cultural battles, these cultural conflicts as we go about our lives? And to understand this, we really need to know the history of of what we know as uh, the Cultural Revolution or the Cultural Wars. We need to know what's going on there. So we have to go back and, and look at our history a little bit. But before we do that, I want to remind you, in that little bulletin you got when you walked in, there's a set of sermon notes in there. It's really an outline of what I'm talking about today. That's there for you to write down any notes that you have, any thoughts that you have, and take that home with you. So you're, if, you're, if you're like me, if you don't write it down, you forget it, and you, wanna, you want that later when you think about these things. Or if you go to lunch today and you want to talk about it, write down what you want to talk about at lunch. We'd love to do that in my family. Okay, the, histories of the, the history of these cultural battles, you don't have to go too far back. You really only need to go back as far as around the 1960s. The 1960s, what a time. I was born in 1963, so I really only remember the later part of the 60s and the, the early part of the 1970s. And here's what we find when we look at the 1960s and the cultural revolution and the conflict that was going on in our country at that time, this social revolution that was uh, taking place. What we find when we look at society then, there's people who look at the 1960s and their experience in the 1960s was their world was turned upside down. It seemed like the end of the, uh, end of the earth was coming. It was awful, it was terrifying. And then there's other people who look at the 1960s and it was exhilarating. It was a time of energy and change. Things were happening. So we had these people, these cultural forces on both ends who were coming together that were we're happy about it, we're not unhappy about it, and it's the social change that was going on at the time. There was good and bad that was happening during those times. And some people say, you've heard, you've heard people say, look, if you remember the 60s, you weren't really there, right? <laughs> but the truth is, we remember the 60s. Those, those who were there, they remember the 60s, and you're thinking about stories in your own mind right now, the experiences that you've had. Some of us who were there, some of us who have studied it, all right? We know these things. Some of our remembrances are clearer than others, but there were good and bad times, and it's, it starts right off, right? It starts right off 1960, the inauguration of uh, John F. Kennedy, a young, exhilarating new president with new ideas. Remember that incredible speech that he made, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, right? But then a few years later, he was gone. Martin Luther King came along, and he had these 
the, this great leadership, these great words, these great speeches. Remember the I have a dream speech from the Lincoln Memorial, those steps, right? It was incredible, but then a few years later, he was gone. Bobby Kennedy, he was there, and then he was gone. All of these things, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1965 that Lyndon Johnson signs into effect. These were exciting changes for some people, terrifying changes for others, all right? There was the talk of the great society, this, this great society where education would be lifted up and poverty would be pushed down and, and the world is starting to look more and more like the kingdom of God. America is this leading nation and no longer, uh, that was barely signed into law. The legislation was barely done when the deployment orders for 550,000 American men and women to go to Vietnam were also signed. 58,000 of which didn't come back. It was incredible highs and incredible lows. Exhilarating, and there was jubilation on one hand, and it was terrifying and painful on the other. That was the 1960s and the early 70s, and of course, 1961 was a very important year. That's when, the, that was the advent of the birth control pill. And at that time, there was questions. It was sweeping change in how people looked at human sexuality. You know, human sexuality over the 1960s became, went from being something precious you know, something that perhaps brought, not only brought life, but made life, gave life. It became something that was done casually, recreationally. Free love was a new mantra. How about uh, uh, Timothy Leary traveling across the country, inviting Americans to take a trip? He was advocating the uh, legalization of marijuana and LSD. <laughs> you can see how these times were, uh, were conflicting. There was a new spirituality out there, Newsweek magazine, basically published what a lot of uh, theologians and scholars had already uh, come to the conclusion of, and that is God is dead. People believed that. That was the 1960s. Then shortly after that, there was a loss in the credibility of the government on many fronts, not only with the Vietnam War, but the, uh, what happened with Watergate and other things. There were lots of questions. And then, you know, in between the between the years, the five years between 1970 and 1975, the divorce rate rose 40%. And during those same five years, the marriage rate declined 30%. I mean, these were sweeping changes. The country was changing. It was moving forward and moving backwards at the same time. People didn't know what to think. But the final straw came in the early 1970s when there was a a backlash against this cultural revolution that happened in the 60s. This was, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the flashpoint for what was going to happen next. And that was a, a, a ruling that was in the Supreme Court. This had sat in the Supreme Court for two years. It got there in 1971, and the decision was made January 22nd, 1973, 47 years ago next week. And that was Roe v. Wade, the decision that was made on abortion in that case Roe v. Wade, in the, uh, the case, uh, the decision that came out of the Supreme Court was that women have a constitutionally protected right to have an abortion for any and all reasons in their first or second trimester. All right, and in the third trimester, finally, the chance that the unborn child could live outside the womb was uh, allowed states, if they chose, to restrict abortion except when the mother's life was in danger. That changed everything. In 1970, there were 15 states that had liberalized abortion laws. And in that year, there were 200,000 legal abortions. 
By 1979, there were 1.5 million legal abortions that year. Things have changed. You know, if you ever have questions about these social issues that we're talking about, we have something called the United Methodist Book of Discipline. There's a whole page or two in here about abortion. It's a, I call, I call the view in here a pro-life view with a heavy heart. <laughs> because we have to live in the care of these things. We have to live in, inside of these decisions. And if you ever want to read it or talk about it, I encourage you, you can go out on the internet and, and you can Google United Methodist Book of Discipline about abortion and you'll find that paragraph 161 in there and it'll tell you all about it. And that's where I find my own stance on abortion. But people look at this event that happened in uh, the early 70s, the straw that broke the final, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. They began to say something's got to change. They began to say our world's going in the wrong direction. Something has to happen. And groups began to form. Things did begin to happen. And what happened in 1973, some groups came together and it really wasn't, they really weren't public until uh, the late 70s, but this was formed by a fundamentalist Baptist preacher named Jerry Falwell. I'm sure you know uh, his name, many of you. And he formed what was called the Moral Majority. You remember that because they're still around today. They're still out there. And their hope was, their purpose in the Moral Majority was to achieve a constitutional amendment or to somehow uh, reappoint judges to the bench in a way that they could reverse the Roe v. Wade. They could reverse that decision on uh, abortion. Now over time there were many other elements to the platform. There were many things that they added, but that was the very beginning. So the moral majority, we see their effects even in, in the elections in 1980. They began to have a say. And then shortly after that came Pat Robertson with his Christian Coalition. We have James, Dr. James Dobson coming along after that with the Family Research Council. These were all political action groups on the religious right that had um, issues that they were forming. They were political action groups that were affecting, they were trying to go out and affect elect elections. All of these things were in response to the cultural revolution that happened in the 60s and early 70s. This was a response to what was happening there. This rise in the uh, religious right. So they began to stand up for these causes and I have to be honest with you, I'm so glad they did because they raised the questions about abortion. They said, should we act so casually about this? Is this really just tissue in the womb? Shouldn't we step back and think about this? They looked at human sexuality and they said, should we act so casually about this? Look what it's doing to our country. Is, isn't this still something sacred that God gave us between a man and a woman? Should it be so recreational? They took a look at things like pornography and others. I'm so glad they did. They raised these questions that our country needed to wrestle with because it sure seemed like we were going in a direction that would not be good for us. So I'm grateful that they did these things. They wondered about these things that were once sacred and holy, but no longer seemed that way. But as they added causes, as they did things, somewhere along the way, that pendulum that had swung way over to the left in the 60s, you know, that pendulum that goes one way, and, and in our democracy, this happens all the time. I think you can think of just our presidential uh, elections over the past 50 years, and you'll see that pendulum constantly swing one way from the left to the right, and then it swings back. That's what's great about our country. But in this time, in the 70s and 80s, what happened is the, the reaction from what the pendulum had done in the 60s when it swung way to the left, it came way over hard to the right. And things were added to these religious right, the, to the Christian coalition and the moral majority, and they started adding things to them. And, and there were a lot of us who found ourselves in a place as, as this swung way over to the right, and as we study these issues, we begin to say, hmm, maybe I don't agree with everything that they're saying. 
And we found our, our, uh, ourselves in a place where a lot of the views that we found way out on the edges when the pendulum would go left or go right, we would find our own views inconsistent with those. And we found ourselves somewhere in the middle. We said, I, I find truth out here on both ends, but, but I find myself more in the middle. You know, we didn't gather everything that came along with their agendas and just say yes to everything. And that's how the pendulum swings. That's how it happens all the time. And when I, when I read this, you know, when I study these types of things uh, in the Cultural Revolution, I begin to think about Newton's third law of motion. You know, Newton's third law of motion, the object in motion will tend to stay in motion, something like that. You scientists will correct me on that afterwards, I'm sure. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, maybe that's it. I don't know, but I'm going to show you a video. Bring up that video of Newton's cradle. Some of you had these on your desk back in the 80s, right? That's Newton's cradle. See how it goes left and then right and left and then right and left and right? That's, that's just the action of our, our democracy as it goes way over to one side and then there's a reaction that comes over and that one swings. And then you always have that one ball or two balls or three balls in the middle that never move, right? And here's what I've learned. When you find yourself in a place where you know, you can't say everything, to, you can't say yes to everything way over here on the right because you don't agree with everything, but you find some good things there, and you, you, way over here on the left, you can't say yes to everything, but you know, you find something good there, you find yourself in the middle. And what happens when you're in the middle? You get hit from both sides. <laughs> I gotta be honest with you, it gets tiring in the middle. It's hard work in the middle. Everybody's pounding on you from both sides. You know, you go to that family reunion, and that's all people on one side, and then you go to that work party, it's all people on the other side, and you're trying to stay in the middle. You get tired. You get very tired. But what happens is you find uh, that you really don't belong. You find yourself somewhere in the middle. The early Methodists called this the via media, the middle way. Wesley encouraged his followers to be in the middle, to be that person that wasn't always right, way out on one side and fighting with everybody else. Try and find the best from both sides and make that your platform for your own faith. That's what he tried to do. But he also warned him, you're gonna get hit from both sides. Because really what happens is you're not liberal enough for the liberals, you're not conservative enough for the conservatives, and you find yourself in that spot where you're trying to find your way, and you're trying to do it by the light of the scriptures, you're trying to do it by the discipleship that you try to follow through Jesus Christ and his model. And you know, here's what I find, that backlash that happened from the 60s and 70s, here's what I find that happened. I don't know if you, you talk to a like I do. I don't know if you, got, you talk to unchurched people sometimes, and you say to somebody who's unchurched, you say, why don't you go to church? And the conversation always goes to this place. I preached a whole sermon series on this. When you ask unchurched people, why don't you go to church, they say, well, you know, Jesus is okay. Jesus is okay. It's Christians I got a problem with. So narrow-minded and hypocritical. So judgmental. And the church, the church has an agenda. We already know what it's going to do before it does it. The voices that speak for the church hurt my feelings. It's painful to watch, so I don't, I don't even bother. And you know something? When I look at you, when I look at Christians, I don't see narrow-minded and judgmental. I don't see hypocritical. When I look at Jesus and his teachings, I don't see any of that stuff. I don't see the work that we're doing that way. It's the message that gets to them when we're constantly pounding on sins, and that's what gets to the media. That's what people think of us. There's got to be a better way. There has got to be a better way. And I'll tell you exactly what happened with the moral majority and the Christian coalition and all those groups when they were doing their work in the, in the 70s and 80s and 90s. They won the elections. They lost the battle for people's hearts. 
I see young people shaking their heads. Because they engage culture the wrong way. And that's what we really need to understand. So when we go to engage culture, we have to understand how the culture has been engaged by Christianity in the past and how we're going to do it in the future. And there's four ways that we do that. There's four ways that we engage culture. The first one is withdrawal. Put up that next picture, would you, Kevin? This is the community that withdraws, right? Is that beautiful? When you think about people withdrawing from the culture, you think of the Amish, and it's so simple and beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. But that's not what Jesus did. You know, the Amish have come together and they said, we know what the kingdom of God looks like from Scripture. All this, this isn't the kingdom of God. We're going to withdraw and we're going to do what they did hundreds of years ago. We're going to prescribe to that. But it's not what Jesus did. Jesus stepped into the culture. He dove into the culture and he was there with both feet, his mind and his heart. And he was engaging it in such a way that he could change and lead and show them through the way that he lived. Withdrawal is one way, but that's not what Jesus did. The second way we could do it is accommodation. Now, accommodation of the culture, this is a, a possible approach. And what that means is the culture comes into the church and the church begins to reflect and resemble the culture. Okay, now here's what I want to tell you. I have never been in a church, a denomination, or anything else that has not accommodated the culture in one way or the other. I accommodate the culture. You accommodate the culture. This church has accommodated the culture. We have to be relevant in a way. And I'm, I'm very thankful for some of the accommodations. Indoor plumbing is awesome. <laughs> Air conditioning, in June, you're going to feel it. Or July, you're going to feel it. We make some accommodations. It's when those accommodations affect our values. It's not okay. Okay, so we have to be aware of that. It can change the way we think. We are still the church. There is right and wrong. But we're all guilty of accommodating. That's another way to do it, but it's not the best way. Then there's this third way, and that is a militant approach to engaging the culture. There's this militance, there's this war against the culture. We sing about that. Onward, Christian soldiers marching off to war. What's the war? <laughs> the war is the culture. We go out there and we change things. That's really what we saw in the, in the 70s and 80s, right? You know, the Christian coalition going out there and beating on the culture with their truth, right? But the interesting thing is that doesn't look very much like what Jesus did. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus got angry sometimes, but you remember when Jesus got angry. When Jesus got angry, was he getting angry with all those sinners? No, he was getting angry with the church. When he was at his angriest, he was yelling at the church, the Pharisees. And why was he yelling at them? Because they were the ones who were keeping the sinners out of the church instead of bringing the lost ones in. When he was dealing with the sinners, he did not get angry. He did not do that. All right, and that brings us to the last one. This last approach, I think, is what's modeled by Jesus, and that is courageous witness through sacrificial love. Courageous witness through sacrificial love. And that's part of what I advocate here for me and you and for this church as we engage the culture that we're in. Now, listen to me. I'm not saying that there's not right or wrong. There is right or wrong. That's where your faith and your discipleship and that's where your life of, of, uh, with Jesus goes. Some of you have asked me, you say, Tom, I hear you talking about the Via Media. I hear you talking about this middle and you're confusing me. It sounds like you want me to be a lukewarm Christian. There's right and there's wrong. Yes, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being in the middle and just riding the fence for riding the fence sake. You've got right and wrong. You've got to know that. What you do, how you encounter the faith, that gives you right and wrong. 
It's how you engage the culture in light of that right and wrong that we have to be concerned about. How you share it. That's what I'm talking about here. How we share that message. What does it look like? How does the message come out? And we find very good advice from what we found in our first reading today. That first reading from 1 Peter was amazing. You know, he first, first he, uh, it's Peter writing to uh, Christians, Roman Christians, and you got the Christians and you got the pagans. The pagans are everybody who's not a Christian. And he first says, he, he says, I urge you as aliens and exiles. What he's saying is, you are an alien in this Roman kingdom. You're, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, so you're in a strange place. So here's how you're supposed to act. Abstain from all those desires of the flesh. Well, you know all the things the pagans doing? Don't do that, all right? Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That's all the non-believers. Then he goes on to say some, some things here. He says, do honorable deeds, glorify gods, don't malign others. What he's saying is, live your lives in such a way in this culture where you're an alien, live your lives in such a way, even though they wanna say bad stuff about you, they can't say anything bad about you because they see all the good that you're doing. And nobody's gonna believe them because they're gonna see the good you're doing too. He's saying, live such a way, do honorable deeds. Then he goes on, as servants of God, live free. Do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Respect and care for them. And when Christine told her story this morning, she gave the last line all except the end. She said, love the family of believers, fear God. But she didn't say the last part. Peter says, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Do you know who the emperor was? It was Nero the most hedonistic emperor probably ever in, the, in uh, the Roman kingdom, and they were to even honor him, to humble themselves through humility, and that's the way you change the world, and that's the way really Christians change the world. You don't find a militant Christian of Christianity in the first and second and third centuries going out and doing war against sinners. No, you don't find that. You find these exiles, these foreigners living their life in such a way in Christian discipleship in a totally foreign land that they changed the world for thousands of years. And the other people just eventually came and followed them. I mean, here, here's what I find when we talk about these issues. You know, here, here's what I, I'll be honest with you. When you have big groups of people out on the edges, when you have a huge group of people over here on the right and a huge group of people over here on the left, I gotta be honest with you, they're not all crazy. They're not all idiots, no matter what you think. You don't find a whole large group of people surrounding an issue and, and they're all stupid. Somebody's gotta have some smarts in there or they wouldn't be surrounding the issue. Okay, so they're out here on the edge. They each have something good to say. You can get something from it. So here's what I find, you know, in most of our talks, in the church or other words, we're talking about an issue and somebody's talking about it and you know what we're doing while they're talking? We're not listening. We're thinking about what we're going to say next. And as soon as they stop to grab a breath, boom, we jump in with our truth and we slam. And then we retreat to our corners to get some rest before the next discussion. But here's what I find. If we'd be willing to listen, if we follow uh, Peter's advice, if we just listen, act humbly and be, uh, approach it with humility and, and respect, Stay quiet, listen to their whole view, and then when that person's done, you've respected them, and you've shown them humility, and then you say, very simply, here's where I stand on this subject. Here's what I think, and here's where the scriptures lead me to think. And then you get to say your point, and guess what? You might have learned a little bit from them because you listened, and they might learn a little bit from you because you were humble with them, and, and they listened, and then you can walk away, and guess what? When you do that, you don't find yourself way out on the edges. 
you find yourself a little bit close to being one of those balls in the middle with a new friend. (laughs) And you may have drawn them in too. See how we look at this? How we treat this? Respect, humility. James tells us, we we find this all through Scripture. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Jesus says this, right? He says, why don't you take the log out of your own eye before you try and take a splinter out of somebody else's eye? Paul tells us the whole way through all of his letters, consider others better than yourselves, walk with humility, practice love, and listen. There's a lot of good information in here. Just think of how the world would change if he took that kind of advice and did it. You know, and here's what I want for our church. I just want us to be the church that's modeling something different. I want us to be the salt and the light. We don't have to be right about everything, but we can be leaven that can change a whole society. We can do that. And that brings me to the final story here. I want to wrap this up. And that's the scripture I read to you from, from John 8. It's a wonderful story. I, I love this story so much. You have Jesus coming down off of the Mount of Olives. He comes into the temple courts. He's teaching. He's got a crowd around him, you know. And here come the Pharisees. Stones in one hand, an adulterer in the other. And they bring this lady before Jesus and they say, Jesus, we just caught her in adultery. You know what the Old Testament says. What do you say? Jesus does the most amazing thing. He's in the temple courts on this uh, this stone tablet floor, right? And he he gets down and he leans down and he begins to write in the dust on the stone floor. What's he writing? We don't know. John doesn't tell us. But I think back to the last time in the scriptures when we see God writing with his finger. And what's he writing? He's writing the Ten Commandments. What was Jesus writing? Was he, was he making a list of the sins that were standing before him now who were holding stones? The Pharisees who were all about holy living and righteousness, the ones who were so concerned about piety? John doesn't tell us what he wrote or what he said, but they either could read what he wrote or he said what he was writing. And one by one, you could hear the stones plump, plump, plump. And then Jesus gets up and he turns to the woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Are they not here? She says, they're gone. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go. Live differently. Adultery is wrong. Okay? I'm not saying there's any... If you're reading John, Jesus has already given the Sermon on the Mount. He's already said, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eye, you have sinned against her and against God. He said, if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck them out. He's already condemned adultery with some of the harshest language we could ever imagine. But when you follow Jesus, you have to look at his harsh language, and then you have to turn and see how he lived it out. And the message to that woman is, you're a sinner, and you don't deserve to be here, and adultery is wrong. His message to her is, go and live differently. It is nothing but grace, and grace, and more grace. When we have a militant approach to prove our point, it is not graceful. From both sides of the pendulum. Folks, that's... That's my hope for us. I think about that woman. What was she feeling? Was she terrified? Was she humiliated, ashamed? I think it was all of these things. She was frightened to death. But that's not what Jesus gave her. He gave her grace. And you know, that makes me think about what our lives are meant to look like and what the life of this church is meant to look like. Are we going to be known in 
our culture or is Wayne Church, that one who pointed out everybody else's sins and was judgmental, or people are going to talk about Wayne Church, and they can say, yeah, I know that church. Isn't that that church that, that gives away all of their Christmas Eve offering? $35,000 that goes out and, and changes kids' lives? Isn't that that church that opens up on Wednesday and Thursday and gives away free groceries for people who can't buy their own? Isn't that that church that's trying to start a school in Liberia? Isn't that that church that, that redid RTCA? Isn't that that church that invites us in to help decorate their church in the winter and then they invite us in again on Memorial Day? Isn't that that, isn't, that that, isn't that that church that shows radical love? And even before I was a Christian, they treated me with love. That's my hope for this church. Great ideals, great values, good morals, overwhelming love. Folks, that is how we engage our personal faith in our public lives. Let's pray.